Welcome to this first podcast on responsible business and building back better, hosted by HL Base, Hogan Lovell's impact economy practice. My name is Fenella Chambers, and alongside my colleague Harry Wright, we run the HL Base practice in London. HL Base is in a unique position to leverage the experience of a global law firm to ensure that access to legal support isn't a barrier to scale for social organisations, and also to act as an enabler for those organisations to grow their impact in a sustainable way. Our mission at HL Base is accessible legal support for business as a force for good, and we work with some of the world's greatest innovators around responsible and sustainable business, and our guest today, Mike Barry, can certainly be counted in that group. This conversation seems particularly relevant, I think, in the current turbulent times, where the call to build back better is stronger than ever before. Um, So Harry is now going to introduce Mike before kicking off the conversation. Thank you very much, Fenella. Mike Barry is a leader in responsible business. For many years, he was head of sustainable business at UK retailer Marks & Spencers and was central to the development and delivery of the company's groundbreaking Plan A, which has the overarching aim of making M&S the most sustainable retailer in the UK, setting out ambitious targets around carbon, waste and resources, water, human rights and community engagement. Mike continues his work to build a truly sustainable future and is involved in organisations such as Climate, an impact investing platform for environmental investments, and Blueprint for Better Business, a charity that helps business to be inspired and guided by purpose. Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. To start off, it would be great if you could talk to us a bit more about your belief about entering a new business cycle. The Black Lives Matter movement has highlighted the inequality of the current system. Do you think that this new business cycle has a role in creating a more balanced society and supporting economy? In times of crisis, whether it's racial injustice, COVID or the environmental crisis, what do you see as the role for business? Harry, uh, thank you. And Fennell, thank you very much for the kind invitation to join you for this, this conversation. And I'm a great believer that we are coming to the end of a 40-year cycle of neoliberal globalisation, where how business has operated, its relationship with planet, with people, with regulators, with investors has been very stable. It might not have seemed it at the time. We had things like 9-11, the financial crash in 2008. But really, it's been a period where things have been uh, very, very similar in terms of, of how business does business. All that's changing. You mentioned Black Lives Matters. I think that's a great example now of a, a, a great intergenerational shift that's happening. Whereas my generation, and I can speak as a 53-year-old, have been happy to sort of brush under the carpet many of the ills and wrongs of the society and the economy that we live in now. The new generation that's coming through is not. And they look at the things like the, the, the systemic racial discrimination that's built into our system and say, why? Why do you accept it? And they push us, push us to change it rightly. The same with the climate crisis, where we've all nodded our heads and said something needs to be done next year next year, next year, but actually it needs to be done now. So the energy and enthusiasm we're seeing with Black Lives Matter and with school striking, with Extinction Rebellion and many other movements, the pay-up movement that's come out of COVID and demanding payments for, for works in Bangladesh from clothing businesses that reneged on the orders that they placed because the sales have crashed in their marketplace. All these are, to me, a point of that there is now a generational shift of expectation. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because it's not just on these mega ills that people see fault. If you're under 40 right now and you look around, you think, where am I on the housing lander? I'm generation rent. Where's my career going? I live in a gig economy. What am I going to do about retirement when in 50, 60 years time? I can have no certainty about what that will be. 
what about uh, what about the cost that I'm taking on now to sort of protect older people, your generation, Mike, during COVID? I'm not going to die of it, but I've locked myself away for months and taken on billions of debt to protect you and your generation into the future. So if you're under 40 right now, you expect a radically different, not just political system, but economic system too. So generationally, we have to shift. The second thing that's driving us to change is a recognition that this, the, the climate crisis, the plastics pollution crisis, the loss of biodiversity, and not just theories for the future. COVID has shown us how quickly this, this smooth, just-in-time global economy can fall apart. And we haven't seen anything yet from COVID that will be like the true impacts of the climate crisis, the impacts of extreme weather, the extreme impacts of extreme heat on our way of life. And we can't self-isolate and correct from a climate crisis. Once we've unleashed it, it won't go away. So that's the second reason why I think we will see a dramatic shift from the old way of doing business to a new one. Thirdly, we've also seen uh, the rise of populism across the planet. You, know, you, can, you can talk about Trump, you can talk about Brexit. You know, many countries in Europe have to sort of grapple with the rights of, of movements that are more nationalistic, uh, more self-isolating away from the global economy. And again, we can't be surprised when so many good jobs from the old economy were shifted very rapidly um, into the developing world, to China, to Bangladesh, to India. Great, great, great benefits there, but nothing was done to help people transition uh, in the developed marketplaces to prepare for a new future. So again, we have to find a way of connecting with this hyper-global um, economy that sort of is sort of very distant from everyday lives to the communities and localities where people live. And then fourth and finally, we've got a huge uh, shift in technology, the fourth industrial revolution, which we'll explore a little bit later, I think. But we've got this advent of uh, AI, big data, drones, driverless cars, sensors, you name it, all of which can make our futures very much better or can make it very much worse. We literally are at a crossroads when it comes to tech for good. So for lots of reasons, I believe that we're coming to the end of a 40-year cycle of fixed capitalism. We're going to enter a very turbulent 18 months to two years as things are remade. And then a new system will emerge at the other side. And if we do genuinely build that better collectively, it could be a good future for all of us. But if we get it wrong, it could be dystopian as well. Thank you, Mike. Um, you were instrumental in creating UK retailer M&S's famed Plan A sustainability strategy. Could you talk to us a bit about what the great greatest challenge was in developing Plan A? Um, and whether you would have any advice for business um, that is looking to embrace sustainability. Sure, Fenella. And, and, and again, we need to go back 13 years now um, to 2007. It seems like a lifetime ago in so many different ways. And at the time, Plan A was, was genuinely radical, genuinely radical. And I'll explain why in a minute. Um, today, it seems humdrum. It seems like something that any business should have. And, and the reason it feels dated now um, was because it was very much focused on making the existing business model less bad. Marks and Spencer committed to systemically, and I stress the word systemically, reducing the footprint of its existing business model, selling of food and clothing, less carbon, less human rights challenges, less animal welfare abuse, uh, better fish sourcing, better wood sourcing, better cotton sourcing, better factories, better farmers, better, better relationships with farmers, you name it, across the entire waterfront of what a big retailer could actually do MS had a position on everything and not just a position it did something about it i had brilliant colleagues like carmel mcquade adam elman louise nichols who got out there and actually implemented these, these these sort of big targets working alongside the business with people in logistics in operations in marketing in selling in retail 
in HR to change the very essence of how M&S did business. Now, at the time, that was tough. And it was tough because there wasn't the context we have now. All the things I've just sort of trotted out to say that there is need for a dramatic shift in how we do business. Some of them sort of exist. I mean, Al Gore was talking about an inconvenient truth. Climate change was starting to emerge for the first time into the, the public consciousness. But there was no appetite to truly transform the way that business did business. It was about making it less bad. And what we did with, with Plan A then, we went through five phases of change. First, we built that firm foundation of a position on everything, a target and a governance system to, to reduce things. The second thing we did was then integrate it into the beating heart of the business, making sure that every commercial category at M&S, from Italian ready meals to men's socks, had a plan to integrate Plan A into how they do business. And the same in the supply chain, working with those 600 food factories to build a bronze, silver, gold pathway to more sustainable business practice. And in doing so, make that supply chain that leaner, more efficient, more productive, and more resilient. The third thing we did was then build partnership with other people, say little old M&S turning over 10 billion a year was never going to move the global economy on its own. So when it came to issues like palm oil sourcing, M&S using palm oil probably in the quarter of the food products it sold, but it was a few thousand tonnes um, in 800 different products bought from a, a sort of liquid commodity from seven steps removed from Marks and Spencer. The ability for M&S to actually find that palm oil and then change it was almost infinitesimal. So we had to stand next to people like Nestle and Unilever, Coke and Pepsi, Walmart and Tesco at the Consumer Goods Forum and drive collective change. So partnership to drive systems change was crucial. The fourth thing we did was engage our customer base, an employee base, 83,000 colleagues, 32 million customers in the need for change. So what we did is we made it easy for them to donate clothing to Oxfam rather than throw it away. Three million garments a year, raising two million pounds a year for Oxfam's vital work. We really engage people about the difference they can make in their local community. So for so many people, these big global issues we're talking about today feel very distant. But what can Marx and Spencer do for the places where it traded and it operated? That made a huge difference. And then the fifth and final thing, and, and you know, the job still in, in progress at M&S, with, with good colleagues pushing it forward now, is to transform the business to understand these radical shifts that we're starting to see in the marketplace. So a shift from a meat-based diet to a plant-based one a shift from a plastics-based delivery system into the marketplace to something much more akin to closed loop. And interestingly today, TerraCycle and Tesco have announced the launch of a new way of bringing um, branded goods to your doorstep in reusable containers that can be used time and time again rather than single-use plastics. So M&S launched something called Plant Kitchen, a 60-product vegan vegetarian range that brought people who were flexitarian, not vegan and vegetarian, not often in many cases, but flexitarian in to explore a non-meat-based diet. It flew off the shelves. So all around us, MS needs to prepare and is preparing for these, these radical shifts in, in what we buy and, what we, what, and how we sell. So to bring all that sort of then a summary, now that I'm consulting in the boardrooms of many different businesses, big and small, right across the economy, not just retail, I ask three fundamental questions of every board. Why are you doing sustainability? What are you committing to change? How are you integrating it into your business? It's that simple. The why is a strategy piece. If you're a meat-based business, how do you prepare for a plant-based diet? If you're a diesel car company, how do you prepare for electric future? What are the insights you need from your customers, your colleagues, your investors, from pressure groups, from your competitors, your disruptors in your marketplace to understand what your strategy should be for sustainable, a sustainable future? 
The what question is where most people go very quickly and straight away. That's the technical stuff that we did with Plan A, the human rights commitment, the science-based target, the water commitment, the salt commitment, and all very, all very important and have to be supported by a proper delivery that I mentioned MNS led the way on, proper transparency, proper reporting. But actually, the three questions, it's the least important because it's fairly well understood now. And then the third question, the how, is the one that everybody forgets. Because people write down a plan, lots of words on paper, lots of numbers and targets, and it sits in the corner of the of a business and no one else knows why they're doing it or what they have to do to implement it. And the how is about how do you engage your suppliers, your colleagues, your customers, your investors, your policymakers around you, the rest of your marketplace. The example you used about the Consumer Goods Forum in Palmer. How do you engage everybody else in delivering the plan day in, day out? So it becomes how you do business. So if you can answer the why, the what, the how, you've got future. If you can't, you don't. And Mike, how important do you think the role of technology is in the sustainability revolution? I mean, technology technology is vital, and it's vital for, for, for two reasons. One is that it's a great enabler. So if I go back to the, the M&S story, a small retailer, Marks & Spencer, sold 3 billion products, food and clothing, each year from several thousand factories, none of which that it owned, uh, behind them 20,000 farms producing raw materials, and behind them commodity supply chains, the forests, the cotton fields, palm oil, soy, um, coffee, uh, tea, rice, etc. Two million workers probably participating in that supply chain, uh, say those products sold through a thousand shops and websites to 32 million people. The number of touch points is staggering. To try and track and trace it all using an old Excel spreadsheet, impossible. Now in the world of AI, big data, machine learning, the ability to track and trace every product through every location where it's, it's manufactured, to understand every material in it so that you can close the loop and reuse it when people are finished with it, is phenomenal. So technology becomes a great enabler, not just a tracking and tracing, but for example, satellites following, following deforestation to understand which parts of the supply chain are at risk and which are not. The ability to sort of create new ways of farming. So the ability to um, not just have a plant-based diet, but ultimately protein grown in the lab. So never never, never sees an animal. Um, the ability to come up with new fibres that can be used time and time and time again. These closed-loop systems I mentioned a moment ago, to be constantly returning containers back to the manufacturer to be refilled and brought back to you. Technology enables all of that to happen. But on the converse side, and there is always a converse, all these technologies can be used for harm as well. And we've seen it with the fears about elections and the democratic process being hacked and usurped um, by whether it's state actors or others. Um, we've seen the concentration of power with a few big businesses worth over a trillion dollars now. And what are their roles and responsibilities uh, in a global economy for paying their taxes, uh, protecting your data and um, doing the right thing? So wherever we look, we're at a crossroads with technology. Either it enables an acceleration to a build a sustainable future, or it takes us even further away from it. And it's literally our choice in the next one, two, three years. And that's why I think you as a company, right at the heart of, of, of these technologies, how they're brought to the marketplace, the IP, the regulatory systems for them, um, how businesses self, self-police themselves, is so very, very important. Thank you, Mike. Um so you've talked about sustainability at, at a macro level um, and then also in a business sense. But do you think there are things that we can do on a personal level as individuals? Of course. And 
I, I'm a great believer that there is no Messiah out there that's going to save the planet. It's, it's about 7.7 billion people that live on it today, all stepping forward and doing things differently. Now, some of that doing that differently has to be enabled by government and big business making it easy. And, and that's what we've spoken about the preceding 15 minutes. But if I now focused on the individual, and I'm going to sort of focus initially on people who want to drive change in an organisation. And I would say there are six ways that you've got, you, you can enable change to happen in any organisation. One is that you need to have phenomenal emotional intelligence. Most of the solutions that we need for a sustainable future exist today. It's about convincing people in your organisation and around you to use them. So as much as you need a big, bright brain to understand all this stuff, you need great people skills to, to lead, um, embrace, uh, energise people to ad adopt a more sustainable future. The second thing you need is a great understanding of how business ticks. I meet too many people uh, in our space who are passionate believers in a better future, and I love that. But in calling for business to change, they don't understand how business operates. How does it buy things, sell things, market things, employ people, run systems? Only by understanding that can you ever possibly understand how to change it. And I meet lots of people coming out of university saying, Mike, 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 how do I get a job in sustainable business? And they say, don't rush there yet. Go off and do a graduate training course at a big, big blue chip, you know, HSBC, a Tesco's, a Vodafone, whoever it may be, and learn how business ticks first before you decide how you're going to change it. The third thing you need is clearly you need great IQ. You need intelligence, but not in a sort of double PhD climate science kind of way in a big, in a big an organization. You've got to understand how you can bring multiple different insight points, a bit of customer research, a bit of employee insight, a bit of understanding about climate science, a bit of understanding about the regulatory system, like future liabilities in, in terms of resilience and impact on your supply chains. And you've got to bring all these multiple different data points together in the boardroom and say, look, we've looked at all these different things. None of them are conclusive on their own but you put them together, this is how we should strategically respond. So I'm looking for people who don't make science, but they interpret science. They can look at all these different uh, factual points and say, on balance, this is what our organisation should be. Fourth thing I'm looking for is people who can build partnerships. I keep using the example of Palmol, there's many others, to do with, you know, for example, closed loop for plastics, um, tackling the systemic human rights abuses that we, we see still too prevalent, even in UK supply chains, as we've seen in Leicester recently. We need people who can build partnerships and one day be competing on behalf of their business to win through being more sustainable. The next day, working with the rest of its sector to challenge the systemic issues that everybody faces and no one can solve on their own. The fifth thing I'm looking for is somebody who can really have a big vision of where we need to be in 2030, but can then also come up with a practical pathway to get there. And I meet way too many people who have a dream about 2030, but no idea about the practicalities of getting there. And way too many people I meet who understand where we need to be in six months' time, but no further than that. The ability to actually move between those two horizons, six months and 10 years, is critical in terms of future business leadership. And the final thing, as we all know, you need a bit of courage. You need a bit of spine. It's going to be difficult. The doors will be slammed in your face. The climate deniers will deny. But if you are driven, you are purposeful, you can build a compelling case to say this actually leads to a better outcomes for individuals, for citizens and for corporate corporate businesses and for shareholders, we'll get there quicker. And that's what they're the six things I'm looking for from individuals. Thank you. Uh, sometimes, you know, when we're talking about these issues that we face um, at a global level, it can seem overwhelming. Um, I think speaking to you certainly makes 
addressing them sound more possible when you offer practical steps and suggestions. Um, but I'd love to know, just on a personal level, are you optimistic that, in fact, we can build back better and that is the route that, that we will take? Oh, my goodness, what a big question. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a discussion I had earlier today with somebody else. It, it helps that I'm a perennial optimist. You know, I, I, I'm literally the glasses 10% full kind of character. There's 10% of something in a, I still think we can, we, we can win. Having said that, in my darkest moments, I look at where we've got to as a society, politically, socially, economically, and particularly environmentally, and think, wow, if we don't bend the arc on where we're heading over the next five, 10 years, we're really in a difficult place. And again, COVID, as I think, has woken us all up to how precarious modern life is, how quickly it's, it's falls apart on the basis of um, a, a disease or a pandemic that starts in an obscure city on the other side of the world. And suddenly, you know, the, the global economy is brought to its knees. The impact of rapidly accelerating climate change is going to be phenomenal uh, and not in a good way. And, and people keep talking about, you know, 1.5 degrees warming, 2 degrees, 3 degrees, etc. We, we ideally would keep warming under 1.5 degrees. We're going to punch through that. People talk about we must keep under two degrees. Very could be very difficult. I think we're heading for three, three and a half degrees of warming, which is truly dreadful in terms of the impact on human life and livelihoods, uh, the functioning of society, stability. So for all those reasons, I have got this burning fire behind me saying, Mike, push, drive, make, make things work, make things better now. But the optimist in me says that with the human ingenuity we've got, the resourcefulness of, of business, the fact that we're now looking into the precipice and understand that we're looking into the precipice, we can pull back from it, but we ain't got much time. I haven't got much time at all. And that's why I said to everybody listening to this, I don't care whether you're at the start of your career or at the end, what your job description is, what your pay band is, all of us need to throw our shoulder to the wheel and push to build back better now. Well, if that isn't a call to action, then I don't know what is. Um, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and to share your experience and ideas for how we can encourage a more sustainable and, and a more equitable world of business and to ultimately build back better. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.